0: This is Let's Have a Drink, a podcast from BizNow Media where we grab a drink with the people who buy, build, sell and shape New York City real estate. I'm Miriam Hall, BizNow's New York reporter. Today, for our sixth and final episode of this season, we're having a drink with Compass Vice Chair, Adelaide Pulsinelli. I will have a lemonade, please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you have, are you gonna have something?
0: Yeah, I'll have a lemonade too. We meet at the Marlton Hotel in Greenwich Village. Isn't this place cool? It's beautiful. Much. This place is dripping with literary street cred. Jack Kerouac is said to have written books here. Valerie Solanas, the famed feminist thinker who tried to kill Andy Warhol, once lived here too. Thank you, Thank you so much. Beautiful. Uh, awesome. After a run as a dorm for the new school, it got a multi-million dollar renovation and reopened in 2014. Adelaide comes here a lot because she lives nearby. In fact... She's never really lived anywhere but Greenwich Village. As the child of Italian immigrants, she was the younger of two daughters, who, in her words, was the one her parents didn't have high hopes for. But she always knew she wanted to make money, and lots of it. Today, she's heading up Compass's commercial real estate division in New York, a job she took after brokerage Eastern Consolidated closed last year. But when she started, she didn't go straight into commercial real estate. First, she tried her hand in the textile industry. I'm a little bit of a hybrid. I
1: didn't just go to school as a, as a teen. I went to school and after school I went to work. And so I worked in textiles since I was in probably my junior year in, co- in school, in high school. College was the next step and I decided I didn't want to spend four years of my life on hold in school when I could be working, being productive and learning more in the business world than behind a desk in a classroom. So I decided I was going to go to school at night started in textile thinking that was going to be my career and then realized very quickly that we couldn't compete with the exports. And so I decided that I would find a field where I could make a lot of money. That was my goal. I just wanted to make a lot of money.
0: Some friends and family suggested that she try selling insurance. Others said a job on Wall Street would be the way to go. She tried both options but neither really stuck. Then she thought about commercial real estate. At the same time, her aunt was selling an apartment building in Soho, and she saw firsthand how a sale can close. In the sale of
1: that, in the process of selling it, she found out her tenant had the right of first refusal. So what that means is that he had the right to buy the building at a set price, and if he couldn't, and she had to, he had to match whatever price she got, but it was within a certain range. and. At the close, she did not think he had the money. At the closing, he actually found a buyer, so he she sold the building for four hundred thousand dollars, and he sold his right of first refusal for four hundred thousand. So the actual buyer paid eight hundred thousand, of which my aunt only got half. So I didn't think that that was right. Yeah. And it, it triggered something in me saying that, you know, there are a lot of owners like this that own real estate, but it's not their full-time profession. So they don't understand the nuances and these caveats that could potentially allow them to not reap the benefits of the real estate and not see the whole value. So I decided to switch from textiles and go into real estate. Was it scary though? Because you had like a salaried
0: job. Right. So, so make that. So job. let's go back
1: to the beauty of living in the village. My parents lived here. I had a home. I didn't pay rent. So I was able to live with them till I was twenty-four years old. Actually twenty-five. <laughs> so I lived rent-free till I was twenty-five. That's and awesome. knew that at that point, where was I go where is the most real estate transacted? New York City. So why would I go to the suburbs? Why would I move out? I wanted to be where the action was. I wanted to be where the money was. I wanted to be where there was growth, and I wanted to do it on a pretty accelerated basis.
0: Her best-known deals include the $107 million Lee estate portfolio in Brooklyn, as well as the Heinz and Well Tower $115 million assemblage on Lexington Avenue. But her first big break was the sale of 444 Park Avenue South, a deal that scored her a $75,000 commission back in 1986. So you got a cheque for $75,000? Yeah. What did you do with that?
1: I bought an apartment. <laughs> I decided now is the time for me to move out. Now I can officially move out of my parents' home, buy my own apartment, and I bought one across the street at 2 Avenue. What
0: was so it like touching first... that check though, like that very first thing? So
1: it was beyond exciting because my family came from very humble beginnings. My mom came from Italy. She didn't speak the language well. My dad was a worker and so this was a big deal. It closed around Thanksgiving. And I wasn't, I was the daughter that they really didn't have high hopes for. You know, they were okay with whatever I was going to do. My sister was the doctor. I was, eh, whatever she's doing, is, is, we'll we'll just accept her. And when I came to Thanksgiving dinner, I made a copy of each of the check and put it on each table setting. So everyone in my family, when they sat down, they opened the envelope and saw my check. (laughs) I said, see, I did actually make it. (laughs)
0: 75,000 in 1996. Yeah. a lot of money. What have you done in the past to
1: get a deal? Well, it's really knowing the nuances of the real estate. It's knowing where the value is hidden. It's knowing what you can trigger to get the reaction that will get a higher price. So getting people to commit to seeing the future, commit to seeing what this could be one day, is not so easy. (laughs) And then to get a high price for it. Um, I've had situations where I had an owner that the only way to, to, to get him to respond was I'd show up at his place of business at 7 o'clock in the morning with donuts. He happened to love chocolate donuts, so I would get there every day and wait until he showed up. And some days he didn't show up. And I would wait a couple of hours for him with a bag of donuts. To get him to pick you to To pick get the him to speak to me. Oh my he wouldn't
0: take my calls. <laughs> so I had to go to him
1: and wait and then just say, hey, by the way, here's an offer. Did it work? It did work, yes.
0: So you've got to be kind of gutsy.
1: Yes, you have to be able to accept rejection because it's just a word and not take it personally. You have to have thick skin because people can say and do not nice things and you have to be able to roll with the punches. But you have to be able to back it up. You know, you have to be able to say that you know some part of what's going on in the industry, the values, the trends, the, you know, what... What is this about? Where is the future of this neighborhood? Where is the future of this asset? How do you how do you get to that value and, and be able to articulate how this is going to be worth more in the next decade?
0: Are you the sort of person that adapts to change well?
1: Change is inevitable. The only constant is change. So I've accepted that a long time ago. It used to freak me out, but now I've accepted that that's the only thing you can actually count on. So embrace, embracing change is important and I do it and I've done it and It's fine, change is invigorating, change, you know what, sometimes you need to change just to see that you were doing something in a way that could be done
0: better. Change is really healthy. Adelaide joined Brokerage Eastern Consolidated in 2012 and stayed there until it abruptly closed last summer. Just like around 100 other brokers and staffers, she was back on the job market looking for a position in a sluggish investment sales environment and a shifting brokerage landscape. She joined Compass a few months later and says she's been steadily building up the team, though it's not an easy process to start an investment sales division from scratch.
1: When you start at a new firm, there is a learning curve. You're learning systems, you're learning a new platform, and starting over when your firm closes is a very different way of starting over when you're just shifting from one firm to another. So starting at a firm where leaving a firm that closed or having exited a firm that closed, a lot of the owners that we were working with were no longer confident. They didn't want the the tarnish that came along with being with a firm that just closed. So any contracts or any, any exclusives we had, we had to cancel.
0: So you lost all of those? Yes.
1: So it's not just starting over. It's really starting over. But we are now much more ahead of where we were, and we're doing the deals that we you know, were hoping to do. Have you closed a lot of sales yet, or is it still kind of ramping up? I'm clo- I have closed sales. I'm still ramping up. I have several exclusives, about three dozen exclusives, and I have a very healthy pipeline. So it's doing well. I think we're doing exceptionally well. We spent the first few months putting together a team, putting together a division, putting together systems, hiring so it's not you jump into a desk and you plug in and you're back on the road. It was almost like setting up your own brokerage. From Well, you are. Yes, and in a firm that didn't have a commercial division, there's a lot more involved. It's as if you're starting your own company. So luckily, Compass has systems that we were just in the process of integrating and adapting
0: to our use, which takes time. Compass has a lot of venture capital money. Uh, that's kind of what it's known for. How does that affect what you do or how you run your business?
1: So, it affects us because it gives us comfort. We know that we are not going to fold, we are not going to close because we can't pay the bills. It's a nice feeling of security.
0: So, you've, you've hired a lot of people? We've hired not a lot of people, we've
1: hired strategically. We are really about quality, not quantity. And we're hiring smart, collaborative brains that we believe are industry leaders and are willing to work in a certain culture. And the big draw for us with Compass is that there is a culture, and if you don't fit that culture, you cannot work here. Compass has the feeling of being a small family operation. I've never had the feeling that it was a big conglomerate that you know it was hard to that that's hard to maneuver. It's very homey. It's very It feels like a small family. Having the leader of the company come to our office and just sit and listen to us and ask us what we think is very unusual for a large firm. So no matter how big Compass is, we can always reach out to Robert Refkin and get his input on anything we need. He gives everyone his personal cell phone number.
0: So he's always just a call away, which is very different than most other models. They say that they're disrupting brokerage and you said it's kind of disrupting the industry but how much can it really change isn't it still buying and selling things and taking a commission yes
1: and no it is about buying and selling and finding a buyer it is about finding a buyer and a seller and making a commission but the process of getting from point a to point b is what we're disrupt is what's being disrupted it's not as easy as post putting a sign on a property and then hitting a send button and it goes out Compass is more strategic about the marketing and very strategic in their disciplines about how to get from point A to point B, and they're making the whole process more seamless. And also, it's very user-friendly, and it's also very client-friendly.
0: How have you found your peers who are not at Compass have reacted to the idea of, of a brand new investment sales shop, almost?
1: Well, it's it's funny because right now, I think everybody and all of my peers are going through something similar. And I don't know too many companies that haven't had some sort of change in the last two years.
0: I mean, look at what happened with HFF.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of combinations. There are a lot of consolidations. There are a lot of folks just deciding that they're not going to continue doing this. So it's the whole industry really is changing and in disruption. So it's going to be interesting to see where everyone ends up. The first year is going to be interesting because people are finding their new homes next year we'll see who remains in the new homes and if it didn't work, they'll move on to different positions. So there's just a tremendous amount of change happening right now.
0: Tell me a little bit about the people that you've hired. You have quite a high percentage of women working for you.
1: Yes, which is very unusual in our industry and what's great about it is that we have several senior level women who've been doing commercial sales for decades and we all work together in one place or another and now, we all seem to have the same kind of, um, we, we kind of have the same experiences. And so when we sit and talk about what we want, we all have the same vision, which is very encouraging. So the best part of this is that Compass has now, commercial division of Compass is mostly female and senior level female. And I think that's a statement to the industry that, they found a place, a compass where they could feel like they're part of something great. Where maybe before that wasn't the opportunity that they were shown and I love love the idea that women feel comfortable coming to our firm and working with us and I think there is a huge there's an immense power to having females in an industry that's mostly male and it's a statement to the industry that we can do it and I believe before we started hiring all these women, we, you know, my mantra was 2019 and 2020 are going to be the year of women succeeding. That's just my own personal opinion. And then it organically happens that you know, we were approached by women that were in the industry and then we, we didn't go looking specifically to make sure they were women, but the women that came to us were really of a higher caliber and we just felt like this is a natural next step. What is
0: doing well? What is the market after? What kinds of assets are people looking for? What sorts of things are trading? So there's a little bit of a pause right now for a couple of reasons.
1: One being the regulations in June that have put a lot of the buyers and sellers on the fence. There is um, a lot of uncertainty in the multifamily market right now. Where are these values going? Have those factors already built into the values? Have the values already dropped to the point where they're not going any lower? Are the buyers expected to meet those values now or will they abandon that asset class for the short term and see how it pans out once the regulations get in place? So multifamily is kind of on the sidelines. Retail is having its challenges. However, I do believe retail is starting to come back. There are tenants taking positions. Um, I've closed my last two deals were retail deals, retail condos, retail co-ops, garages. So I, I think there's some traction there, especially when you're in the area of workforce housing and the real estate, the retail is supporting that. So those stores are still in existence and still doing well and still paying normal rents. It's the high street retail that's suffered a little bit, a lot. Um, I see a lot with industrial. I see a lot with opportunity zones. I see some development sites are starting to trade, and you know, at, at lower rents, the lower pricing that they were tra- that then they were trading for before. So there is always there's always something that's doing better than the other asset classes and so be it an upcycle or a down cycle there's always something to do and something to sell if it's not a sale maybe it's a net lease maybe it's a ground lease maybe it's a partnership or a joint venture situation so there's always something to transact with
0: rent regulations was they're inevitable now they're happening people have made their peace with that but People must have seen this coming. I mean, we knew for a while, there were predictions for a while that the Democrats were going to take control, and this was a major priority for them. So do you think some people were caught by surprise by this? I don't think that people were caught
1: by surprise. Real estate investors are pretty savvy. Ninety percent of them are doing everything right and properly. It's, it's very, there are very few bad landlords, and unfortunately... The hype is that everyone is bad, and there's this unfortunate perception that all landlords are evil, and it's just casting a bad light on on landlords in general, because if you do the research, you will find that a lot of owners are actually mom and pops where they bought a building to put their business in or they bought a building to live in or they bought a couple of buildings because they had several family members and they all wanted to participate in ownership, they're not all bad.
0: Because people look at it and say, well, rent-stabilized units are a precious resource that should be preserved. That would be one point of view, the way people look at it and think, hey, this is something that's really good to protect affordable housing in a city that is incredibly unaffordable.
1: Well, if you think about the economics of that statement, there is a huge disconnect when you don't allow the market to find its equilibrium. So, therefore, you then become you then have a shadow market. And those folks in those small apartments or the rent-stabilized or rent-regulated apartments who may have outgrown them, they don't give up the apartment. They sublet it. They have friends
0: living in there. What are you hearing? from your buyers and your sellers? Are, are people thinking, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sell this? Or are people thinking, I'll ride this out? Or is is it just people are waiting till June? So most folks are waiting till June because the pricing could be,
1: once, once the indecision or the uncertainty is clarified, then I think the market will continue to progress.
0: Thank you so much for having a drink with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's Have a Drink is produced by me, Miriam Hall. Mark Bonner is the supervising producer. Travis Gonzalez is the audio editor.